Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The Colorado River supplies water to at least 40 million people, including 30 tribes in seven states. But persistent severe drought is drying up the river and the man-made reservoirs that control the resource. Tribes have fought hard to win water rights after states unfairly divided up control of the river a century ago. Now they're facing the possibility of strict reductions in usage because the water is simply not there. And there's no improvement on the horizon. We're talking tribal water rights during climate change, right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. International human rights groups are concerned about growing violence against indigenous environmental defenders in Honduras, where four killings have taken place since the start of this year. Many people are comparing the wave of killings of indigenous environmental activists to the infamous 2016 assassination of Goldman Environmental Prize winner Berta Cáceres. Maria Martin reports. On the Caribbean coast, members of Honduras's Garifuna ethnic community of black and indigenous origin say it's strange that rights activist Ricardo Arnaul Montero was declared drowned with no autopsy. Montero had been receiving death threats related to a long-running land dispute in his Triunfo de la Cruz community. The incident comes on the heels of the killings of other indigenous Honduran environmental activists like Ali Dominguez and Jairo Bonilla, who'd founded the Wapinol Water Defenders Movement, which fought against river contamination by a controversial open-pit iron oxide mine. They were killed in January in broad daylight. Police say they died in a robbery attempt, but their families are pressuring the government of President Xiomara Castro for an independent investigation. Supporters like attorney Yolanda Gonzalez say local authorities have criminalized these environmental defenders for too long to be objective. Gonzalez says one of President Xiomara Castro's promises when she took office a year ago was to defend Honduras's highly at-risk environmental activists. But so far, she says, there's little political will and nothing's been done. For National Native News in Guatemala, I'm Maria Martin. The Department of the Interior recently announced additional Biden administration appointees to join the agency, including Lynn Trujillo, who will serve as senior counselor to Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland. Trujillo is from Sandia Pueblo and most recently served as cabinet secretary for New Mexico's Department of Indian Affairs. Shortly after taking her position as cabinet secretary in 2019, Trujillo talked about the importance of Native women in leadership roles and her work with then-Congresswoman Holland. I hope that we um, inspire other women to, um, you know, envision themselves in these roles. Uh, I would have never foreseen myself in this position, but I'm here now and I know that all my life experiences um, in terms of my career, but also who I am as a public woman has prepared me for this. 
As Indian Affairs Cabinet Secretary, Trujillo worked closely with tribes during the COVID-19 pandemic. She also made it a priority to address missing and murdered Indigenous people, which included working closely with a task force and focused on Native youth issues with an Indigenous Youth Council. Secretary Deb Holland is also a Pueblo woman from Laguna who made history becoming the first Native American cabinet secretary of the interior and as a Native American woman elected to Congress. The Biden administration's newly created job of Arctic ambassador goes to an Alaskan, Michael Sfregra, who currently chairs the U.S. Arctic Research Commission, a Biden appointment in 2021. He's considered an expert on Arctic geography and policy and has been a longtime advocate of the use of indigenous knowledge. He served in a number of national leadership roles that involve the Arctic and helped establish the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C., and was also a vice chancellor at the U. University of Alaska, Fairbanks. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the American Indian College Fund, providing millions of dollars of scholarships to Native students every year. Applications are accepted through May 31st at collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm your host, Sean Spruce. 29 tribes, 7 states, and the federal government have a say over how water from the 1,500-mile-long Colorado River is distributed. Tribes have the benefit of hard-won rights to a portion of that water, and at least for some tribes, millions of dollars in legal settlement money. But it's not enough, as a decades-long drought has the Colorado River and its reservoirs at historically low levels. Stakeholders are working on a plan to cut back on water usage, now tribes, who consider water a sacred resource, are at the forefront of water conservation. In this hour, we're talking about what it means to have water rights when there's no water, or very little water sought by so many competing interests. We hope you'll join today's conversation. What water issues does your Native community face? How do cultural teachings affect the way your community uses its water? Call us at 1-800-996-2848. That's also one 800 99-Native. Joining us from Dulce, New Mexico is Daryl V. Hill. He's the former water administrator for the Hickoria Apache Nation and co-facilitator of the Water and Tribes Initiative in the Colorado River Basin. He's Hickoria Apache. Daryl, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Sean. Uh, good to be back. Good morning. You bet, Daryl. Good morning to you as well. Also joining us in Fort Defiance, Arizona, is Dr. Crystal Tuli Cordova. She's a principal hydrologist for the Navajo Nation Department of Water Resources. She's Navajo. Dr. Tuli Cordova, welcome back to the show. Yes, Ben. 
Great to have you on the show, uh, Crystal. Looking forward to the conversation. And also joining us in Tucson, Arizona, is Dr. Carletta Chief. She is a hydrologist and director of the Indigenous Resilience Center at the University of Arizona, and she is Danae as well. Carletta, welcome back to Native America Calling. I know you've been here before. Oh, yeah, thank you. Good afternoon, yeah. everyone. Daryl, I'd like to go ahead and start with you today, get the ball rolling. What is the current status of the Colorado River, and why are people so concerned right now with the water levels? Um, well, as, as most people uh, on the show today probably know, because we've seen it in the news, you've experienced it personally, you know, we were in a, a hydrologic crisis that we haven't experienced really in, in our lifetime. And that, that, that the, you know, all the modeling indicates, and, uh, and there's, there's folks that are on the panel that have a lot more experience in this, but they have indicated that we might be in this, you know, we were into this almost 20 years or more, and that we might be in this cycle for almost 100, 150 years, according to Brad Udall, who's a, a climate scientist. And, and, and so what, what, what it's done is that we, in, in the past, there's been traditionally kind of wet kind of environments where, you know, there, there wasn't that much concern about it. There was everybody was getting what they wanted. But over especially the last 10 years, you know, and, and, and experiencing the, the impacts of the, this drought, and as Brad Udall refers to it, you know, this longer-term aridification process that's happening that's beginning in the southern San Juans has exasperated, you know, this, 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 the, the hydrology to a point now that it, it's coincide, if you will, the, the, you know, kind of the uh, perfect storms of, of, of policy, hydrology, uh, a, a, a global pandemic, kind of all diverging at one time. And you know, uh, uh, and given and given the the, the, the decision making structures and those who have been traditionally involved in those, creating a, 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 a kind of a, a place where you know there's you know uh, there, there's a need for quick solution making, but then those structures for solution making with the, the inclusion of voices that need to be included aren't there yet. And so it's created this kind of atmosphere where and fear, and we should be scared. And, and, and absolutely, you know, at the, at the core of, and I know this conversation is going to be impacts on those 30 sovereigns you mentioned, you know, as we go on to this, given that there may, they, tribes may not have settlements, given that the reality is in 2023, there is no formal uh, a place, not at the state level or at the federal level, to engage in policymaking in the, in the broader Colorado River Basin. And, and that's the reality of our situation. And we saw, Sean, that, you know, if tribes were not able to be able to participate in these policy conversations, and we haven't been because, as you as mentioned before, you know, the, the current law of the river was established, you know, over just a little over 100 years ago, last November. And, and we were, you know, we weren't part of that process. My tribe was living on subsistence rations on the federal government on a piece of land that, you know, wasn't truly our, our, our traditional homeland. And being hunter-gatherers, you know, that's where we were at when the foundational law of the river was created. And it's really important to understand that because, you know, we saw, we're celebrating the 100th year of that, that, that the foundational law that continues to apportion, you know, the, the Colorado River the way that it did. And there wasn't even a thought of tribes back in that era. 
And, and so basically tribes are about 100 years behind in this capacity divide, depending on which tribe, you know, maybe has elevated to a lesser degree of that. But really, these, our settlements are very recent. And mm-hmm. so for my tribe who settled in 92, you know, I mean, so as you can see, Sean, I mean, there's, there's this convergence. And, 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 and now there's, you know, given that hydrology, uh, uh, absolutely forcing everybody's hand in terms of building these relationships and then posturing in terms of, you know, how can we still get what we need? And, okay. and, 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 and yeah. All right. Well, Daryl, thank you for all that background. Uh, really, really helpful to help us frame today's conversation. So uh, this fundamental law, 100 years old, and then, of course, you mentioned the Hickory Tribe settled in 1992. So click ahead to, the, to today, 2023, and how has this all, this, this drought and all of these other issues, how are they affecting your tribe's access to water? It, again, given you know the, the impacts of, of the broader climate com, climate uh, change conversation, you know about five years ago, you know there's a real strong push, you know, to uh, shut down coal-fired uh, uh, electrical generation in the Four Corners. My tribe and its settlement, given the nature of the settlement and where the water was available, takes delivery of the bulk of its settlement water at uh, Navajo Dam and Navajo Reservoir. Same thing. And, and, and we have a, a specific provision inside our settlement that allows us to uh, 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 lease un, 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 unused water uh, to a second party. We have long-term, long-term uh, lease agreements for a water supply to Public Service Company of New Mexico, APS, and BHP that also included short, shortage sharing components. They gave us, you know, less than, you know, a month notice that they were terminating those lease agreements. And for us, that meant, that meant millions of dollars of revenue and, and that we, that, that, that's utilized absolutely to, to fund the tribal government. And so when that happened, because of the law of the river and all these things that are going on in terms of lack of inclusion and lack of understanding and lack of building of these processes, uh, we had a situation where we had 25,000 acre feet of water that was flowing down from Navajo Dam down to Lake Powell without any compensation, without any ability to, to uh, uh, be able to, to uh, uh, be included in some of these kind of conservation programs that people have been paid for, you know, mm-hmm. recently. And so we didn't get to participate in any of that. And so that's one impact. You know, that's incredibly huge to understand because that's a large part of our revenue. And given where we take delivery of our settlement water, absolutely it impacts my tribe. Okay. Now, aside from the revenue aspects of of the water, what's just the the current condition? I mean, is there enough water there that's reaching the Hickory Apache community to, I know there's a lot of ranching there, there's agriculture, as well as just the households that need water to cook and to clean and everything else. Do you have enough water there on the reservation? You know, we're very fortunate right now that we're, we're closer to the headwaters of, you know, one of the tributaries of, of the Colorado River or the San Juan River, which is the Navajo River. But And so, you know, and traditionally, when, when I was younger, that flowed about around 60 CFS. Now it's down to about 20. 
and it's gone down to as low as maybe 10, 15, you know, during really, really dry periods. So absolutely there's a concern there. And there's absolutely a concern about the, the influx of, of, of non-natives into southern Colorado right across the border where the Navajo River originates. So there's water quality issues as well. And, and so when we start to think about this, you know, we're fortunate that we, we, we seem to be okay right now with our municipal supply because we don't use our full allocation of diversion. So, but we're absolutely thinking about how we're gonna mitigate into that into the future. And, 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 and reservation-wide, it's, it's absolutely impa impacting a way of living in terms of the culture of ranching that was established once we could no longer be hunter-gatherers. And because of this climate situation, this drought, you know, we absolutely are, are you know, that, that's, that's the, the pe people's ability to do that here is starting to be taken away. Mm. And those cultural components just can't be uh, understated. And uh, really, really interesting topic today. We're talking about this water crisis there on the Colorado River. And we're listening to Daryl V. Hill. He's the Hickory Apache Nation, co-facilitator of the Water and Tribes Initiative in the Colorado River Basin. And uh, we've got Daryl on the show, as well as some other guests, and we're going to hear from those other guests after the break here. Anybody that wants to call in today and has any kind of a question for our guests or a comment with regard to water usage in, in your tribal community, we'd really love to hear your thoughts on this conversation. Again, this is an issue that is impacting so many tribal communities throughout the western United States with uh, increasing droughts and other uh, environmental concerns that are really putting pressure on long-standing sources of water, rivers, aqueducts, dams, lakes, you name it. The number to call, 1-800-996-2848. That's 1-800-996-2848 to share your comments on the air. We'll be right back. The Biden administration could soon clear the way for a new oil drilling project in Alaska projected to produce 180,000 barrels of oil a day. Alaska Native corporations applaud the project's potential for jobs and oil revenue. At the same time, villages in the region are coping firsthand with the ravages of climate change. We'll learn more about the Willow Project on the next Native America Calling. Hey, Think teeth. Medicaid and CHIP cover many children's dental services, including teeth cleaning, fluoride treatment, and fillings. For more information about children's dental health, contact your Indian health care provider, visit insurekidsnow.gov, or call 877-543-7669. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elakwa. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the water crisis along the Colorado River today. If your community uses water from the river, how concerned are you about the drought? How is climate change affecting the way you or your tribe uses water for agriculture or ranching? Share your thoughts at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. 
I want to bring Dr. Tuli Cordova into the conversation now. And Dr. Tuli Cordova, we heard from Daryl V. Hill. He gave us a really good overview of, of these dire conditions there, and they date back 100 years and some of these policy decisions and other issues that have really impacted tribes negatively. And I want to ask you, though, uh, concerning these dangerously low water levels on the Colorado River, when did they really reach these these critically low numbers that really have people concerned right now? Thank you, Sean. I think it's important to have an understanding of the lakes. So the two main lakes that we're talking about are Lake Powell and Lake Mead. And just how low are they? I did look at that this morning. And Lake Powell is at 23% storage capacity. And that's at a reservoir elevation level of 3,522 feet. And Lake Mead is at 29% uh, storage capacity. And that's at 1,047 feet. And I know maybe many of your listeners may be wondering, well, I've heard from my friends out in the Southwest that they've been getting a lot of snow lately. And even as recent as on Valentine's Day, uh, snowpack has been above average uh, for the Colorado River Basin, 122% of average, and the total precipitation has been 113% of average. But it's important to think about the historical context. Um, Daryl had mentioned, you know, being over 22 years in drought, and just one good season of snow or one good season of monsoon rains that we do see in the southwest during the summertime isn't sufficient to get us out um, of the conditions that we've been in. And I did look, you know, recently as a drought monitor as well for the Colorado River Basin. And through, so if no one knows where the Colorado River Basin is, it includes seven states, um, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada and California. It's a binational system that goes all the way down to Mexico. And there are 40 million uh, users that rely upon Colorado River water. And the drought conditions still are everything from not seeing drought in some locations to extreme drought in other locations. And so that just paints a picture of the situation that we're in uh, with regards to the hydrology. Mm. Now, you, you mentioned the snowpack, and uh, I think when people hear, oh, there's a heavy snow, they get excited. But uh, when it's dry like it is now, when it's hot like this, that snow, that snowpack, it doesn't go into, the, into these reservoirs. It doesn't fill the river in, in the same way it, it does when it's a little bit cooler, does it? No. So what we've also heard, you know, with regards to the snowpack, so something that's concurrently going on at the same time is climate change and drought uh, in the West. And so when you think about that, like, what does that mean with regards to snowpack? So with regards to these impacts that we've been seeing, we've seen declines in mountain snowpacks in the Southwest um, and historically also seen more winter precipitation falling as rain rather than snow, and then also seeing earlier snowmelt runoff. Um, and it's important to have this understanding. When we think of, you know, as Native people, we think, you know, we know that everything is connected. And we say 
water is life and we're that you know that implies we as living beings not only rely upon water but also within the water cycle water is connected and so precipitation uh, such as rain and snow is really critical to the flows um, within these ephemeral streams, ephemeral streams are streams that flow intermittently throughout the year, and then perennial streams like the Colorado River or the San Juan River that flow year-round. And it's important to have this understanding as well with infiltration, right? Because we think about groundwater, and in the Southwest, we do rely a lot on groundwater. Um, and so it's important to have this understanding but, you know, with scientists that continue to play close eye to these conditions with regards to snowpack, uh, what has been said is even with above average snowpack, it would take multiple years to recover, considering the number of years that we did have experienced these drought conditions. Now, also, with regard to, to the, the Navajo Nation, how is this impacting uh, the water supply there as well as all the other issues? You know, as you say, water is life and, and issues like this and a crisis like this has just such far reaching ramifications. So how are you folks dealing with that there in the Navajo Nation? Yeah, so in the Navajo Nation, the impacts to our hydrology, what we've seen are declines in snowpack, declines in more than 30 surface water features um, before the precipitation. You know, this summer precipitation that came and the winter precipitation that has come has been good for uh, the different water holding features that we have, impoundments, livestock ponds. Um, but what we've also seen with these conditions that have extended throughout the time period is, you know, water quality impacts with continued drought conditions. You do see worsening water quality in some locations. And what we are always concerned with as well as our water supply and shallow aquifers are more vulnerable to drought conditions. And so what we are doing to be able to secure and sustain a more water um, secure future is by uh, increasing our water security by um, having a hybrid approach, meaning not just relying upon groundwater, but also relying upon surface water um, and being able to uh, diversify our water portfolio that is providing water to communities. There are also efforts in, you know, looking at other um, availability of sources. I mean, doing rehab projects to stock ponds is also critical during this time period, especially when we have all the snow on the ground and that there will be a snow melt runoff soon once it becomes warmer in this region. Well, I'm interested in learning more about these uh, this water diversification portfolio. What are some of these uh, other sources of water? You mentioned uh, the importance of both ground and surface water sources, but but what else are, are you folks able to access to secure not only enough water, but also, like you mentioned, quality water that's safe? Yeah, so there are a, a couple of things that we're doing uh, to to create a more secure water future. And that includes interconnecting our public water systems to more regional systems so that there's um, more security in that. In addition to that, we, through secure water rights, we are also um, having the opportunity to 
access San Juan River water with the Navajo Gallup Water Supply Project, the Cutter Lateral, and being able to have the addition of surface water and groundwater within these public water systems that serve Navajo communities. Now, Dr. Tuli Cordova, about how large is the allotment of, of water coming off the Colorado River for the, the Navajo Nation? Can, can you say, like, in percentage terms, how much of that water goes to Navajo Nation? The percentage terms um, are variable for various water uses. So Navajo Nation has uh, a few public laws that have secured our water rights. The public law 87-483 secured our opportunity to access water for the Navajo Indian Irrigation Project, as well as the Navajo Gallup Water Supply Project under Public Law 111-11. Something that is still in the works of implementation is the more recent Navajo Utah Water Rights Settlement that was authorized under Public Law 116-260. And it's variable about the water that we're currently using. Uh, because there are projects like Navajo Gallup Water Supply Project, the San Juan Lateral, that is still currently underdeveloped. And then the Navajo Utah Water Rights, we haven't reached that implementation progress yet. Although, you know, there's things like adjudication that has to be completed, as well as a hydrographic survey for that. And so we're not at the point of um, constructing projects currently with that funding. Uh, with regards to the San Juan River, um, evaluation of that, a large amount of the percentage of San Juan River water it has, is tribal water, meaning multiple uh, tribes within the San Juan River Basin. And the estimated number is more than 60% of the San Juan River water is, is uh, tribal water. More than 50% of San Juan River. Okay, interesting, interesting. Uh, let's go ahead and bring Dr. Carletta Chief into the conversation now. And Carletta, you know, listening to both Daryl and uh, Dr. Tuli Cordova talk about this dire situation here and how bad it's gotten. So I, I want to ask you, I mean, what happens here? If these water levels uh, don't get squared away, if these reservoirs continue to, to operate at these low levels, I mean, what does the future look like here if these problems aren't rectified? Uh, yes. Hello again. Yeah. Um, thanks for having me on the show. Um, so I come into this dialogue from uh, a slightly different perspective. I started being involved in uh, climate change um, adaptation and impacts uh, back in 2019. Um, and then prior to that, um, my PhD research was focused on fire and how that increases um, uh, runoff in a watershed. And so at that time, around about 2009, it was really trying to engage with tribes around the topic of climate change and adapting to climate change. So um, this is really nothing new. Um, this is um, has been predicted for quite some time. And I think um, it's really important for communities to be involved in that dialogue to create plans. Like Dr. Tuli Cordova has stated, um, looking at diverse portfolios of water and finding ways to protect the vulnerable. So back in um, 2012, the University of Colorado Boulder created a, a climate change drought study 
with the Navajo Nation, and then uh, we've been doing workshops um, since then, 2014, engaging um, communities. And for one workshop we did uh, with the Navajo Nation, the community's um, top priorities or concerns were around um, how water um, reduction would impact water hauling, how it would impact human health, um, how it would increase dust storms, create lack of forage because many families um, do ranching or farming, and then um, um, concerns around invasive species. And so um, for many tribes in the Colorado River Basin, their perspective the concern around decreasing water is very different from non-tribal communities, mainly because they have a worldview that's embedded in the environment with their culture, their beliefs, their identity, um, their livelihoods. And so um, I think it's important to elevate that further. And I think 10 Tribes Initiative and the Tribes of Water um, Initiative have done a great job to advocate and bring that those um, discussions forward. And so since that time, I've been moving into more adaptation and resilience, trying to talk to communities about what ways can we make the communities more resilient? How can we think about ways to um, increase water access? Um, and that includes um, one of the more recent work I've been doing is developing um, portable off-grid um, food, energy, and water systems, such as growing food through greenhouses and hoop houses, working with farmers on local food sovereignty initiatives, uh, working on off-grid water systems using solar. So it's really just making our, our thought more like there's going to be less water. And all the water lawyers are out there working to settle the water rights and pushing the U.S. government to push that through and and, and um, put that into law and go against how the law of the river has been opposing these efforts um, or not making it um, uh, easy to do. And then more like coming to the community, okay, what can we do to, to adapt and become more resilient? And it's great to see like water managers and directors like Dr. Tula Cordova and Jason John and um, Virgil, uh, uh, Mr. V. Hill here, um, doing a lot of the water infrastructure uh, long term to as the water rights get secured. So I think we just have to change our thinking, um, acknowledge it's happening, and find ways to be more resilient locally. And one of the things um, I think is really important is like human health as well, like protecting the vulnerable, like elders, like when there's heat waves or if there's not enough water. You know, making sure that um, the those in our community are protected, their health, that they're getting um, access to to water during these drought uh, times of drought. Mm -hmm. Dr. Chief, I, I think so many times when we hear uh, about droughts and we hear about what's happening in the West, you know, it's, it's very easy to have kind of these apocalyptic images of, you know, we see movies like this all the time of these horrible natural disasters that could just completely change the world as we know it. And I mean, are, are we facing like a, a truly existential crisis like that in the West with regard to these 
these con- worsening conditions with droughts and, and climate change. Is that a, a real possibility in your view in the next generation or so that, I mean, life could just be radically changed for, for not just tribal communities, but everybody there in the Western United States with ripple effects all over the country and perhaps the world? Um, that's a very um, great question. And I've ha- been involved in these discussions for the last 20 years of, you know, people migrating to other places, people moving to the West Coast. I mean, there are people that are in that mindset of moving, but for many tribes, we can't move. You know, we're within our um, boundaries of uh, a, a, a homeland. And so um, I think what's a positive look on this is that indigenous communities, many are already resilient. They're um, in the sense that they've um, used less water. They're, they've lived on these lands for many generations. And um, I, I would like to frame that more as um you know what we can do to um to go back to our traditional ways of growing food and um and and thinking of more sustainable initiatives um i think there's dr chief i'm sorry we're gonna have to take a break but i will let you finish your thoughts as soon as we come back uh, from the short break 1-800-996-2848 is the number to call if you have any insights regarding the water crisis on the Colorado River? This Easter, you can find truly unique gifts and menu items from SweetgrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company, where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. Program support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Probably Ruby by Lisa Bird Wilson, a novel about a Métis woman adopted by white parents who goes in search of her identity. More on this and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the Colorado River today and what it means to have tribal water rights at a time when the water is disappearing. The Colorado River supply is steadily declining while demand for water in the West is rising. Is there a better approach to water usage? We're at 1-800-996-2848, 1-800-996-2848. And I know our guest on the line right now, Dr. Carletta Chief, certainly thinks that there are better approaches to water usage. And Dr. Chief, before break, you were sharing uh, a little bit of your thoughts in terms of how, as Native people, perhaps uh, one of the answers is to be more mindful of our traditional practices with the use of water. Please continue. Yes, um, I know that um, across the watershed that there are um, efforts to think about water efficiency for irrigation, but irrigation uh, or agricultural water usage is one of the largest um, water usages in the basin right now. So I think at the foremost, that's probably the most um, at risk in terms of um, decline uh, forced um farms having to go fallow. Um, but I would like to um, ask Jason John or Dr. Tuller Cordova, because they are the experts on this topic about the water rights aspect of it. So that um, involves like senior water rights holder, junior water rights holder. But um, I know for certain that agricultural water uses, usages are the most um, allocation 
and um and so I think we do have some um room for that and that's where food sovereignty is really important locally for our communities mm-hmm. um because we're we're um um we can go back to being more sovereign and locally in terms of food access. All righty. Well, thank you, Dr. Chief. And and you mentioned Jason John, and, and we have him on the show right now. He is one of our guests, so I'd like to go ahead and introduce him now. Joining us from Window Rock, Arizona, Jason John. He's the director of the Navajo Department of Water Resources. He's Navajo. Jason, welcome to the show. Yes, uh, Yate, uh, everybody. Uh, I am Jason John, the Department Director of the Navajo Department of Water Resources. Good morning. Good morning, Yate, Jason, and, and your name has, has been mentioned uh, a couple of times already on the show, and we just heard Dr. Chief uh, defer to you with regard to you know some of these agricultural uses, the largest part of, of the of the Colorado River allocation there for the Navajo Nation. And can you talk a little bit more about that? And just specifically, you know, how does the Navajo Nation get its water from the Colorado River? What is the the engineering process uh, to actually make that happen? Yes, uh, the Navajo Nation um, has uh, several major irrigation projects along the San Juan River in New Mexico, uh, the largest of which is the Navajo Indian Irrigation Project, um, which is operated by our tribal enterprise, the Navajo Agricultural Products Industry. Um, That water comes directly out of Navajo Reservoir uh, in the headwaters of the San Juan River. that project, um, the intake for that project is at an elevation of 5,990 feet. And uh, we are always concerned about the drought and that um, the water level could reach that intake. And once it does, the project would be unable to divert water for its farming operations, which includes well over uh, 70,000 acres of of farming uh, south of Farmington. And then the other other Navajo projects um, downstream uh, in New Mexico uh, are the Upper Footland Project and then the Hogback uh, Irrigation System closer to Shiprock. And those uh, provide water directly to uh, Navajo farmers in that corridor. Um, so those are our three largest um, irrigation projects uh, off of basically direct flows from the Colorado River system. Well, thank you, Jason. I'm going to go ahead and take a call now. Listening in Eureka, California online, we have Michael. Hello, Michael. Hello, Michael. Uh, yes, good morning. Good morning, Michael. What's on your mind? Um, a couple of things. Um, I um, apologize for not having all the background of it, but I think a couple of things that are well related are that um, there's going to be, well, we all know this in Indian country that um, our situation in Northern California, the Hoopa Valley Reservation, our engineering connects us to the Central Valley Project. And so we've fought for decades to get a proper 
in our case, fishery restoration flow into our river. And um, that is all related to, um, in our case, we had legislation to do so. But there's presently, uh, one thing I wanted to mention, uh, we, sorry, location there for some background noise. Um, we have a new Congress, and I think we're going to anticipate um, the statute that got us to where we're at. There's what's called H.R. 215. And anyway, it's um, a move to undermine the, the statutes that got us in the situation we're in or the present situation where we're trying to restore and recover a major fishery in Northern California. But the other thing is in the court system, um, folks should should be well aware that uh, I believe the Supreme Court is going to be taking up a case. The winner's doctrine is a foundation of seniority prioritization of water, Indian water rights specifically. And um, I saw some other cases that are re resolving, revolving Indian issues. And I'm not sure what the outcome is expected there, but um, maybe the point there would be that um, getting everybody together in opposition and uh, on a common uh, voice of opposition, those things are all in play. And it's just, you can never, you can never sit back and rest because uh, in the Western states, including ours in California, um, there's going to be a continued relentless uh, thirst for our water. So, mm -hmm. well, Michael, thank you for for calling in uh, in that that a press there for or a concern, I should say, a concern uh, about tribes mobilizing uh, politically and. I want to ask our guest now, Jason John, about that because, I mean, and we heard uh, uh, earlier one of our guests talk about, you know, the attorneys are fighting and they're trying to figure this out and there's so many policy issues at stake. But also, uh, Jason, I mean, if the water's not there, the water's not there, right? And that's really one of the overarching themes of our show today is uh, policies and with regard to who has the rights for what water? Well, um, you know, all of that is mute if there's if there's no water, right? So, what's the answer here, Jason? Yeah, and I, I've had this discussion before with others about the current state of the Colorado River system and um, the fight that's ongoing right now um, over uh, supplies, and we hear. Uh, things in the media about communities being cut off from water supplies. And um, we hear about farms um, between Phoenix and Tucson that are not taking, unable to take Colorado River water from the Central Arizona project and they have to rely on groundwater storage um, and they're pumping that now. And um, all of this is um, very alarming uh, to tribes because we're, we're still in the process of trying to get a seat at the table. Uh, while there has been a, an effort by uh, the United States uh, Department of Interior to, to bring tribes um, to the table for consultation, um, we still feel a threat to our uh, our tribal water rights that are not being used. And um, 
and this not only goes for the Navajo Nation, but many other tribes. And what we're what we're afraid of is that uh, it will be very difficult in the future for us to bring those tribal water rights to use if others are currently using it. Uh, it's really hard um, to take water away from an existing use, especially an existing non-tribal use. Um, and so we, we really have to come to some agreement with the United States that, um, that they need to protect our, our water rights. And um, we get some protection by negotiating our water rights through settlement. Um, I've heard talk about in the past about other tribes who have litigated and won Colorado River water rights, but that was paper water. And so the, the power of settlement is that you can negotiate to have protections on, on your water. Um, so those things are very, very ongoing and very active. The Navajo Nation has settled its water rights claims in New Mexico for the San Juan River Basin. Um, and we have, we're in the process of finalizing the settlement for the Utah portion of the Navajo Nation. But we still have unresolved water rights in Arizona. And of course, that's where a, a big fight is at this moment in this current drought. Okay. Now you mentioned these settlements and some of these other uh, ongoing legal battles. And also, in the past year, the, the federal government allocated about $140 million for water projects. And, and I'm curious to know, what does that money mean for the Navajo Nation and how will you folks be able to use it? Well, yeah, I don't know the, the specific uh, funding source that you're talking about there, but overall for the Navajo Nation, we have approximately $4 billion in current water development needs. Uh, and if you look at just the Navajo Gallup water supply project alone in New Mexico, as part of the San Juan settlement, that project is now estimated to cost about $2 billion alone to complete. And the Navajo Nation has been contributing its own money um, toward that project to connect communities into those uh, transmission lines that are going um, in two different areas in New Mexico. So um, we, we, we appreciate the funding from the federal government, um, but I, I think that we shouldn't, the tribe shouldn't have to come to some settlement agreement to get basic infrastructure on tribal lands. Uh, mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of interpretation about treaties and agreements in the past, and it always seems to go um, against tribes when there's um, things that are not clear. And I think that um, I think the federal government could have built these projects without some sort of agreement. But it seems like that's just the way things have gone um, in the past and is going on right now. So um, you know, we still have a lot of a long way to go. Uh, we we have current needs in Arizona that we could use money for large regional projects, but right now there is no funding source. And if you look at all of the funding opportunities that are out there, um, it's they're small in comparison to what we need. Mm -hmm. Well, Jason, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, 
course, the Navajo Nation is, is a huge, huge, huge nation, over 17 and a half million acres. And, and, and many people live in very, very remote areas. And what does it take uh, to bring water to some of those areas that are more isolated, more rural? Well, it does take uh, uh, a lot of planning, and um, we are appreciative of the uh, bipartisan infrastructure law that was recently passed by uh, Congress in the United States that was fully funding the uh, existing list of projects on the uh, Indian Health Service sanitation deficiency system listing so that for Navajo alone, that was uh, over 500 million worth of domestic water line projects um, and related water projects that would bring water to um, Navajo families that don't have access today. Uh, but, it, but the need goes further than that because uh, water, bringing the infrastructure to homes is one piece of it. We also have to work with these uh, communities to make sure that the homes are readily available to accept that water. That includes uh, plumbing and bathroom additions and septic systems. Um, all of that has to be coordinated along with uh, electrical power uh, for homes. So it, it's, a, it's a massive coordination effort and that bipartisan infrastructure law funding that IHS will be receiving is going to be spread out over about five years. Uh, but we all have a lot of work to do to make sure um, the people get connected to some water. Well, you really underscore just how complex these issues are. It's, it's, it's not enough to just, just have the water. You need that infrastructure as well. You need homes with the plumbing. You need all the other uh, links in the chain to make this all work. And this has been a really enlightening conversation today. Very interesting, uh, really dynamic guests we've had today with a lot of really good insights and really appreciate them all. Uh, thank you again to our four guests today, Daryl V. Hill, Jason John, Dr. Carletta Chief, and Dr. Crystal Tooley Cordova for sharing their expertise and perspectives on the Colorado River water crisis. We're doing it all over again next week with a fresh lineup of discussions about Indigenous issues and topics, including the State of Indian Nations Address by the National Congress of American Indians. Our executive producer is Art Hughes. Our producers are Andy Murphy and Sol Traverso. Marino Spencer is the engineer. Show McPollin is the digital producer. Nola Daves Moses is the distribution director. Bob Peterson is the network manager for Native Voice One. Clifton Chadwick is our national underwriting sales director. Antonia Gonzalez is the anchor for National Native News. Charles Sather is our chief operations officer. The president and CEO of Kiwanek Broadcast Corporation is Jacqueline Salee. I'm Sean Spruce. Have a great weekend. Support by Ramona Farms, offering wholesome and delicious foods from our heirloom crops as our contribution to a better diet for the benefit of all people. We are honored to share our centuries-old farming and culinary traditions online at RamonaFarms.com. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. 
Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.